I want to start with this. Somebody uh, gave this to me. They found it uh, at another church. It is possible that on entering this church, you may hear the call of God. On the other hand, it is not likely that he will contact you by phone. Thank you for turning off your phone. If you would like to talk to God, come in, choose a quiet place and talk to him. If you would like to see him, send him a text while driving. <clears throat> Dangerous stuff. They're outlawing it in Florida. That's good. It has nothing to do with the sermon. <clears throat> um, if you take your kids to Magic Kingdom and they get to see Mickey Mouse, uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing. It's a very magical moment. When Lydia was two last year, I took her in the first time and saw Mickey Mouse and couldn't wait to hug him and squeeze him, and uh, she would have spent all day with him if she could have. But um, it's easy, even as an adult, uh, to forget the fact that there's just some little guy or gal, uh, some, some short person inside that suit. Um, hopefully there's no kids in here listening to this. Might as well just talk about Santa Claus not being real. Um, but you see, uh, <laughs> some of you adults are going, what? It's equally easy uh, to forget the fact that if you have given your life to Jesus, his spirit is in you. You are his costume, so to speak. Now, um, knowing this fact has very practical implications for life in ministry. And that's what I want to talk about today. I want to look at what Scripture has to say about Jesus living in us and what it means for us practically, particularly as it relates to the ministry of healing. We're coming to a close of our uh, four-week sermon series on the ministry of supernatural healing. And so we're going to close with this today. Let's look at John chapter 17. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, or in, uh, starting in verse 20, or you can just follow along in... Your bulletin in that passage. Uh, Jesus, the context here is Jesus is uh, together with his disciples. It's a really tender moment. He's getting ready to go to Jerusalem to go to his death and he knows it. And so he is uh, praying. He's been praying over them. And now he switches to a prayer for the rest of believers who had come to believe in him throughout history. He says to the father, I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word. Okay, so if you are here today and you have believed on Jesus, he is talking about you. Okay, so this, pa- this passage is speaking to you. That they all may be one. Unity is very important to Jesus. He hates seeing his church divided. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now, there's also a unity, not only uh, on the horizontal sphere, but vertical between believers and God. You see the intimacy of the language here. Jesus is actually praying that believers would share in the same fellowship that he shares with his Father. Life in the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, he goes on, moving down a little bit, and says, I in them and you in me that they may become completely one so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Say this, Jesus loves me. The Father loves me just like he loves Jesus. Say it. The Father loves me just like he loves Jesus. That's astounding. Somebody came up after the chapel service last night and said, that just hit me for the first time. That is huge for me. It was like a healing moment emotionally to receive such words. 
Now, there's a purpose to this unity that we have with Jesus standing under the Father's love, the same love that he has for Jesus. And the purpose is this, that the world may know, that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. You see, Jesus always ties our intimate fellowship with him to our mission in the world. He ties the love that he has for us with the world. Now, here's the first question I want to ask. How is it possible that we, impure, sinful creatures, could have this kind of intimate fellowship with a holy and perfect and pure God who is clothed, the Psalms say, with splendor and majesty? How is it possible? Because if we don't establish this first, we're going to get off track really quick. It's possible because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Because he took the record of debt, the record of sin that, that, that stood against us, and he nailed it to the cross once and for all, and cleansed us of our unrighteousness with his precious blood. So that, as Paul says, we could stand holy and blameless before the Father in love. This is... This, you see, people think about the sacrifice for sins as some kind of by and by, pie in the sky. It means I get a place in the afterlife. But let me say something. This is going to sound controversial. The sacrifice for sins that Jesus made is not primarily about securing you a place in the afterlife, but about your present union with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Is there a place in the afterlife and the life to come? Absolutely. Jesus says as much. But it is primarily about union with God because eternal life is union with God. Now, what does this all mean? If we have this deep union, if we believe what God's word says about us, what will the implications be for how we live and particularly as how it relates to the ministry of healing? The first thing that we have to understand is this. You have authority. You have authority. Remember Paul in the passage we just heard from in Acts? Remember there was a girl who was had a, a spirit of fortune-telling and divination that had possessed her, and she was being kind of like a mocker, like just being a nuisance. And, oh, these are servants of the Most High God. These are servants of the Most High God. And she kept going on and on and on. And Paul says he got really annoyed. Um, who wouldn't have? And he turns around, and he doesn't say, I am the Apostle Paul. And I have a lot of authority, so get out of her. What does he say? In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, come out of her. See, Paul walked in the anointing and the authority of Jesus, and he knew that in the, there was power in the name of Jesus to make demons flee. And he also goes on throughout the book of Acts and heals people because he knows that he walks in the authority of Jesus. Listen to what uh, Paul says in one of his letters to uh, the the church in uh, Colossae. He says this in Colossians 2. He's talking about Jesus. He says, for in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That is, the fullness of God dwells bodily in Jesus. And then he says this, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. He's talking to... Christian believers, you've been filled in him who has, who is the head of all rule and authority. That means, friends, that we, that we share his rule and authority over all the powers of darkness, including sickness and disease. Whoa. You guys with me? Awake? Yes. Good. Now, 
if that's the case, and we, we, we see it all through the book of Acts, we're going through the book of Acts in our uh, nine o'clock class, and we're seeing that the preaching of the gospel is always paired with signs and wonders, healing, signs and wonders, miracles, people are healed, demons are cast out, the dead are even raised, and people are seeing this and they say, we can't deny that there's some power in this name of Jesus. And then they proclaim the forgiveness of sins and people come to know Jesus. So why aren't we seeing more of that kind of power, what you might call power evangelism in our own day and age? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons. And I think one of the big reasons is that our faith is depleted by a modern Western worldview that pays little attention to the supernatural world. We think science in the medical world has got everything figured out. And so we don't need anything else. Now I'm pro science and I'm pro medical world and I'm pro medicine and pro doctors. I'm all of that. But if we just look at what we have and say, what you see is what you get. And there's no really need in thinking of anything else. We've missed the biblical worldview. Now, there are other reasons. That's just one. But you see, we should, we don't be discouraged about your lack of faith because you're going to grow in it. The disciples struggled in their faith. Listen to what Jesus uh, does with them. In the, this is the very end of uh, Mark's gospel, Mark chapter sixteen. Now, remember, these are these disciples have seen Jesus uh, open blind eyes. They've seen him. Uh, they've seen him raise people from the dead. They've seen him uh, heal paralytics, and they're still doubting, even after he's been raised from the dead. Mark tells us this. Later, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were sitting at the table. They're just guys are just hanging out. And he upbraided them for their lack of faith and stubbornness because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. They didn't receive, they didn't believe the reports, the power of the resurrection that Jesus had raised from the dead. But now take heart, friends, because Jesus doesn't say, guess what? I'm done with you. My grace has run out. I'm sick of your unbelief. Go home. You don't belong to me anymore. He doesn't do that, does he? He's very gracious. Listen to what he does. He commissions them. He says, Get over your unbelief and now listen up. Go into the world and proclaim the good news to the whole creation. The one who believes and is baptized will be saved, but the one who does not believe will be condemned, right? This is go preach the gospel. Then he says this, and these signs will accompany those who believe. They, by using my name, he says, that's important. By using my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. He commissions them, despite all the faith struggles that they have. Now, it's interesting that we should believe Jesus when he says things like, your sins are forgiven, or obey my commandments if you love me, or for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, but not believe him when he says, you will lay your hands on the sick, and they will recover. You see, it's a, it's a depleted gospel. A gospel without miracles is a depleted gospel. Now, for years, I have owned hundreds of, hundreds of, and some of you have been in my office and seen about hundreds and hundreds of Christian books and theology books and study Bibles and went to seminary for three years. And never before, until recently, in my heart of hearts, that I really believe that I was going to see miracles happen and see the sick cured. And I've had to ask God, I've had to repent of that unbelief and ask God to start giving me a faith to see it happen. And I will pursue it to the end of my days, even if I have to die trying. Because I believe with all of my heart that that is the power of the gospel. To heal not just the forgiveness of sins, but to heal bodies and minds and spirits. 
Now, it's easy to feel disheartened when you see tragedy happen or you see seemingly unanswered prayer. But you can't allow what you don't understand to affect what you do understand that Jesus is alive, he's king of kings and lord of lords, and he's healing in the world today. If you've been paying attention to the e-news, you've seen some of the testimonies and the videos of miraculous healings that I've been posting on there through the email uh, news list. If you're not on there, sign up on the little card in your pew and you'll get that. Amazing how God is at work in the world today. Now, I want to kind of shift practical for us as followers of Jesus, because some of us are sitting here scratching our heads saying, I don't think I could ever lay hands on the sick and pray for them and that they would recover. And I think the Lord wants us to get over that spirit of unbelief. Now, here's let's move practical. There's three ways that I want to talk about today. There's three ways that you can see the gift of healing activated in your own life. The first is this, eagerly desire it. Paul actually uses these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 when he's talking about spiritual gifts, healing included. He says, eagerly desire the greater gifts. There's a definition of eagerly desire means to be zealous in the pursuit of. If you want to see people healed so that Jesus will be glorified and his compassion will be on display, then go to God and tell him and fast and pray and take risks to show him that you are serious about drawing closer to him in this way. It's not, you're not, it's not going to happen overnight and you snap your fingers and all of a sudden you're just going to start healing people. There's a process of drawing close to the Lord so his power can be made manifest through you. And I think what, why, one of the reasons we don't see more of this is there's a lack of what we could call consecration in the Christian life. People devoting themselves to fasting and prayer and seeking God with zeal and fervency so that the power of heaven could be displayed on earth as it is in heaven. Number two is this. Hold on, I can't go to number two yet. Remember Elisha, Elijah's little protege? He's like Elijah Jr. And he followed him around everywhere. He's like, you're awesome. And the prophet Elijah was doing miracles, raised people from the dead, all kinds of miracles. And Elisha, he would not leave his side. He was so devoted to him. And one day Elijah says, I got to go to Bethel. You stay here. And Elisha says, as the Lord lives, I will not leave your side. He was so devoted to pursuing him and to being connected to him. And then when Elijah is getting ready to get taken up into heaven, Elisha, he says, Elijah Elijah says, what do do you desire, Elisha? And Elisha says, give me a double portion of your spirit. He says, I want a double anointing of the spirit that is on you. And he was given it. He walked in signs and wonders, healed people. You see, that is eagerly desiring and pursuing And these were men who lived lives of fasting and dedication to the Lord. Now, number two is this, moving on. You have to take risks. You have to take risks. You have to begin somewhere because obedience results in power. Why would God entrust me to heal the sick if I can't even say the name of Jesus around my family or my friends or my coworkers without being ashamed? That's a hard thing to wrestle with, isn't it? You see, there, there, are, there are steps, and some of us need to take some baby steps first before we get to the big places, the big things, because God wants to see how we steward the small things. Now, I said obedience to God increases our authority to wield his power. Now, I have to remind you when I say this, this is not a matter of love. 
This is not a matter of God's love for you shifting and getting weaker and stronger based on how obedient you are living your life. He could not love you more than he loves you, more than he loved you in the way that he paid the price for your sins on the cross. His love isn't shifting, but this is about power and how we wield it. One author of our book, our OSL is reading, he puts it like this very clear. He says, for those of us who want more power for ministry, the application is clear. We get more authority by being more obedient to God and we lose authority by being disobedient. Let me just tell you a story. Now this, you know, there's so many different ways that we can look for opportunities to obey God. Now this is not about uh, finding ways of trying to burden ourselves with heaviness and rules. Okay, that's legalism, that's religion, that's form without power. This is about learning to delight in the law of the Lord. But taking risks, let me just share a story with you. The other day I uh, was driving back to the office from uh, the diocese, because I had a meeting. I'm like, which way is that? Down there, from there, this way. And I thought, I had lunch. Mm, I need my second cup of coffee for the day. Um, I'll just go, and I guess I'll make one in the office. I had a lot to do, and I thought I needed kind of some of my resources in the office. And I said, I think I'll just make one in the office. But I couldn't shake the feeling that I should just be in public. I just felt like the Lord wanted me to be in public. So I'm driving by my place, driving by, and I'm looking and going, oh, it's coming up. Got to make a decision. I, All right. And I turned in. Didn't really want to work in public. and But I went, and within 30 minutes, I had prayed with three people. Now, I'm not boasting and saying I went around looking for things to do. I was just sitting there, and the people who were beside me ended up resulting in really powerful conversations that resulted in prayer. But it wasn't me. It was the Holy Spirit at work. All I did was listen to the impression. I took a risk. And I said, I'll just go because I think the Lord wants me to be in public. And things happened and there were divine encounters. You see, it just simple obedience like that. It results in an, uh, it results in people meeting Jesus through you. And God will honor that obedience and increase the power that you carry in the spiritual realm. If you want to see miracles, start positioning yourself. For God encounters through obedience. It's that simple. Now, here's the third thing. This is the most important thing. So please, please, if you've been sleeping up to this point, that's fine. But listen to what this I have to say right here. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 17. The third thing is get close to Jesus. And this is the most important of anything, because if we don't do this, none of the other things, all the other things will be legalism and duty. You have to get close to Jesus. Jesus says, I in them and you in me so that they may be completely one. So that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Remember, the father loves me just like he loves Jesus. And when you walk in confidence that that is the case, that the father's love for you is unchanging and steadfast and he delights in you, and you walk in that confidence, the world will know, and the world will meet Jesus when they meet you. But there's things on our end that we need to do to position ourselves for this work, renewing our minds, uh, reading and studying his word, and most importantly, dwelling in his presence while we do that. Because there's a correlation between the work we do and dwelling in the presence of Jesus. Without the dwelling, our life, our Christian lives will feel like a duty, like a chore, like an obligation. Some of you today have felt like that for a lot of your life. It's a burden. You have to go out and do this. You feel guilty because you haven't said the name Jesus to enough people. But that's living out of duty and not delight. But you see, when you draw close to Jesus, 
Consequently, what happens is that you learn to obey out of do, out of delight rather than duty. Because he shares his heart with you, shares his mind with you, and you come to love the things that he loves, namely the people of the world who he wants to walk in relationship with. Uh, one author says this, I love this, learning to act out of who we are to God is central to success in the realm of miracles. Learning to act out of who we are to God, beloved, is central to success in the realm of miracles. You know, 90% of the Christian life is living, 90% of the Christian life is being reminded of who we are because of what Jesus has done. 90%. I made that up, but I think it's true. (laughs) It's being reminded on a daily basis of who we are because of what Jesus has done. That person last night said, I need to go and read that verse every single morning and be reminded that the Father loves me just like he loves Jesus. The other 10 is living out of that place of security and love and wielding the power and the authority that he has made available to us. That's the easy part. Say, the Father loves me like he loves Jesus. The Father loves me like he loves Jesus. Cool story to build your faith. And then we're going to bring it to a close. Uh, there's a man named Blaine Cook. Some of you might know that name. He's worked. Um, he worked before John Wimber died in close... Uh, proximity to John Wimber, who had a very powerful uh, ministry of healing and super, uh, signs and wonders, in the, especially in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And uh, Blaine Cook tells a story about how uh, he'd been a Christian for a while, but he and, his li- he and his wife had encounters where they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they just fell in love with Jesus. And they were just ready to do whatever for Jesus because they loved him so much. When Blaine Cook got filled with the Holy Spirit, the power of God was on him so heavily, he wept for three days. He'd go and do things, and then he'd have to go in the bathroom, and he'd just sit on the floor and sob. Tears of joy because the power of God was so heavy upon him. When people are filled with the Holy Spirit, baptized in the Holy Spirit, the number one uh, manifestation is weeping because there's just so much power and joy and love, uh, waves and waves of it flowing over you. He wept for three years. So he, um, but early, early in his Christian life, um, so they, they're falling in love with Jesus and he tells God one day, he says, Lord, I will do anything for you. I'll pray for anyone that you bring across my path. And he's driving down the road and he sees a car accident and he sees a young girl go flying from the car and it's bad. <laughs> and he, he gets out of the car and he walks over and he says, she was, it was a mess. She was not doing well. And I thought, gosh, I wish there was a strong Christian here who could just pray for her. <laughs> and, uh, then the, then the next thing you know, uh, the police showed up and the parents showed up and the parents told the police, don't, don't, don't call an ambulance. We know our rights. We're taking our daughter home. They thought she was, they thought she was going to die. They wanted her to die at home. So, uh, they, they took her home and he followed, uh, them. I can't remember why the reason was, but he followed to see her go home. I think he was lamenting the fact that he hadn't prayed for her. He felt like he had missed his window of opportunity. And, um, they, they took her home. Well, later that night, he told his wife the story and she said, tonight when the kids go to bed, um, at eight o'clock, we're going to drive over to the house and we can pray right in front of the house for her. And he said, okay, let's do it. So they went at eight, uh, about eight o'clock that night and they prayed in front of the house. They thought that's all they can do. They just thought, you know, God, if there's any possible way, da, 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 da. not having a lot of faith. And, um, they went home. Now, uh, Blaine Cook says that a few weeks later, he went to the house and just, he said, I just had to know what happened. And, um, he knocked on the door and this young girl shows up to the door and it's her. And, uh, he's like, what happened? She said, well, um, 
he said, you know, I was the guy at the scene of the accident who called the police and everything. And she said, oh, wow. She said, well, I, my parents brought me home and they took my mattress off my bed and they put it on the dining room table and laid me there because they thought I was going to die. And um, she said, but the funniest thing happened about eight o'clock at night. I started to feel better and I felt all this like crazy power in my body. And I like slumped my legs over and stood up and I felt fine. And she said, you know, the strangest thing, I don't understand it. My leukemia is gone too. True story. See, but when Blaine Cook first started praying for the sick, he, it was discouraging. He said, we'd pray for people with a headache and soon after they'd be healed, right after they took two aspirin. You know, it, 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 was, it's, it, it was discouraging for a while, but they kept pressing in because they knew that they wanted to see Jesus at work in and through them. And they pressed in. You see, we can't be discouraged by missed opportunities. Or, or our own shortcomings. What we can do is keep pressing into a life of miracles by drawing close to the miracle worker. And his name is Jesus. And that's what he wants from us, friends, is intimate fellowship. I've prayed for someone for three minutes and seen significant improvement in a health condition, healing. I've prayed for someone for 40 minutes with no noticeable change at all. And I don't understand But the lesson I've been learning is this. Jesus wants me to get closer and closer to him. As close as possible. If I want to see his power at work in me. See, with as with any other topic in Christianity, the ministry of healing is ultimately about our union with Jesus. And so our eyes are once again turn back to the cross of Calvary where our sin was atoned for, where we who are guilty were pronounced righteous and welcomed into a relationship with the father of humanity and his spirit, his very person was breathed into us when we gave our lives to him. Let's pray. Father, we bless you in Jesus' name. We thank you that you are a God of compassion and mercy. Lord, and that one of the many powerful ways you express that compassion and mercy is that when your will is done on earth as it is in heaven and the lame walk and the blind see and the deaf hear. So God, we ask that you would show us as a congregation, as a church family, as a community of believers, what it looks like to consecrate ourselves to you so that our faith would be increased. And that we would have a mountain-moving, miracle-working faith in our midst. So that we would see the power and the compassion of Jesus. So that many would come to call upon him as Lord and Savior. It is in his name we pray. Amen.